You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning and welcome to Mill Creek. I'm so grateful to be worshiping here with you this morning. Uh, If you're newer here to Mill Creek or unfamiliar with how we do things, uh, you may recognize that we have a lot of different pastors up here on a Sunday morning preaching the text. And really there's two reasons for that. Number one, we never want to make Mill Creek about one person's personality. We want to have uh, all of God's people who are uh, called and qualified and able to preach the word have the opportunity to get up here and preach from the text. Now, the second reason is we feel it's our responsibility to train up the next generation of, of preachers and teachers of the word. And so with that in mind, it's my pleasure to introduce to you this morning Matt Gonzalez. Now, Matt is our seminary intern here, and he is preaching his second ever sermon here for you here at Mill Creek. And he has put in a lot of hard work, and I'm really excited to hear him preach this text. Uh, Matt will be preaching out of Genesis 21 this morning, and we will be in verses 22 through 34. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find that text in the seat back in front of you on page 11. This is the word of the Lord. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you deal with me and with the land where you sojourn. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard about it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham sent seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore they called that place Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his armies, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted there a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for the gospel. God, I ask that you would give Matt clarity this morning as he brings forward the text. And I ask that you would make the gospel evident. God, we thank you and we praise you. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. So good to see you and uh, so excited for the opportunity to get to preach to you this beautiful Palm Sunday. Uh, As Jonathan so kindly said, my name is Matt Gonzalez, uh, and this is just such truly a a privilege and a a pleasure to be able to to be up here with you today. Um, But Palm Sunday, I I don't know about you guys, but for me growing up, Palm Sunday was always one of those days that didn't make a whole lot of sense, you know? Uh, If you grew up in a church any kind of like the one that I did, 
Uh, it actually like started when the pastor would get up and open his Bible and read from one of the Gospels, and then he'd like yell, Hosanna, at the top of his lungs, and all of a sudden, much more aggressively than our kids just did, like they'd kick in the back doors and start waving trees around, and it didn't make sense at all to me. As a kid, it was weird. It was just weird. It was equal parts like exciting and confusing, and, and for a lot of years, if I, if I can be real, I, I thought people had consistently gotten the date for Easter wrong, and I was like... <laughs> Guys, no, no, you're too early. Like, the bunny's next week. Like, we, we celebrate next week. You're, you're wrong. Uh, I really didn't get it. Really, truly. And it wasn't until I got older that things really started to, to click for me. I realized everybody else wasn't wrong. Go figure, right? They hadn't mixed up their calendars. But instead, I was the one who was not seeing the full picture of what was going on. His friends, like Ricky said, we see in each of the Gospels this incredible moment where the city of Jerusalem is in an uproar. And people are flocking, they're, they're running to see this man, Jesus, and they're taking off their coats and their cloaks and tree branches and laying them down at his feet as he comes into the city. But like, it's not the first time we've ever seen him go into Jerusalem, we, we know that that's the case, but today, of all days, the air is electric. But if you really look at the situation, that doesn't make any sense, right? Let's, let's take stock together. There's this carpenter, right, blue-collar guy. From Nazareth, of all places, riding into town on a donkey, of all things, he owns nothing, he's got no army, no crown, no kingdom, for sure no money, but he's rolling up like he owns the place. And his behavior, and the behavior of the whole crowd that's gathered, neither of them makes sense. It made me wonder as a kid, what is going on? Like, what am I not seeing that these people are seeing? That question is going to be at the heart of our discussion today. We're going to circle back to it, so write it in your margin or however you want to hang on to it. Just know we are going to come back and answer that together. All right, let's, let's take a moment to acknowledge the elephant in the room, right? This morning, we're not studying through the Gospels, right? We're not actually looking at Palm Sunday in the text we're not actually even going to be in the New Testament today. We're going to be continuing in our study of Genesis See, today's message is full of comparisons, and much like Jesus' situation on Palm Sunday doesn't make a whole lot of sense at first glance, the story of Abraham has taken a very similar turn in our text today. You see, friends, throughout Abraham's story, the theme of promise has been at the very heart of things. God has promised that he would have a people and a land. He's promised us time and time again, yet there is no great nation, and Abraham does not own the land. And like Jesus in Jerusalem, he really doesn't look like anything special at all. But the character and the kindness that he displays in today's text shows us that there is something happening beyond what our eyes can see. And as we work through unpacking just what that is, and what that actually practically means. I want to do things a little bit backwards for us this morning so that we can stay on track together because we're going to be moving a little, little quick. I want to lead with our sermon in a sentence because it's going to serve as the lens through which we see everything else that's happening. So, here it is for you. Our sermon in a sentence. God's people are so confident in his powerful promises that we deal kindly with those who don't belong to him. 
God's people are so confident in his powerful promises that we deal kindly with those who don't belong to him. We're going to see together today how our text builds that understanding and then we actually have a really cool opportunity because we have the chance to look back at another time in Abraham's life when that was not the case. And after that, we'll circle back and connect this to our discussion of Palm Sunday and look at what this means for you and me today. So if if we're real, like our passage this morning can feel like a bit of a footnote, right? It's this little 12-verse section that feels like God just had to put a sticky note in the middle of the actually interesting stuff. Like, we've seen wars, and we'll see crazy stuff continue to happen, and like, Isaac is born, and like, there's all this excitement. And then there's this. (laughs) And if we don't take time to slow down, we might not honestly even realize it's there. Before sitting down to study this passage, I have to admit, I I glazed over it time and time and time again. But then I began to see the masterful authorship that's present in the Bible. There is no wasted space. Nothing is out of place, and these words are not wasted. To really appreciate this morning's passage, we have to slow down so that we can zoom in and see what's happening here. Then we've got to actually zoom back out, because this is not just one event. This plugs into a larger story. All right. Let's jump in together. Our first big idea from Genesis chapter 21 is that God's people can have confidence in his powerful promises. Our scene opens on what seems like a random note. Abraham and Abimelech, the land where Abraham's currently living, Sign a peace treaty, right? It doesn't feel like the most exciting thing for us to walk through. But it isn't until we take stock of Abraham's situation that stuff actually starts to get really weird. All right, so we've got on the one hand Abimelech, who's the king of a a city called Gerar, right? He's a Philistine, a pagan who's living in the promised land. He's got a city, an army, a title, A massive amount of wealth. Like we've seen before, he's able to just give Abraham a thousand pieces of silver. The lifetime earnings of a common worker, just gone. Right? He's crazy rich. And on the other hand, we've got Abraham. He's no king. Right? He's got no city, not even a homeland. He's got no title. He's got a really small group of fighting men. He's got a lot of sheep and camels and goats, but like no wealth to to rival a king. He's a nomad who lives in a tent. That makes what happens next really fascinating for us. Because as we've discussed, the whole situation's upside down, but we see first and foremost in our text that Abraham deals kindly with Abimelech. Abimelech the king goes out to see Abraham the nomad, and he comes with a strange request. That Abraham would deal kindly with him and with his, now and into future generations. Abraham not only meets with him, but agrees to his terms. He swears that he will deal kindly with them. That seems fairly straightforward, but remember with me, friends, that Abimelech is not one of God's people. He's outside of the covenant family. This is a dealing between God's covenant people and pagan Gentiles. 
This is not something we normally see happening. And there's an honest oath that is sworn between the two. Let us remember they are not equals, especially by earthly standards. By earthly measure, Abraham is by far the lesser of the two. But Abimelech actually acts as if Abraham is the greater. And he says that because the Lord is with him. Abraham not only acts with confidence like a king, but he acts kindly and uprightly with this pagan. He deals with Abimelech as if he is a king and as if he owns this land that he is in. But we know from just taking stock that that's not the case. right? He's not a king and he doesn't really own any territory. It brings to mind that man in rags, Jesus, rolling in like he owns the place. And again, we should naturally find ourselves drawn to the question, why? Then we see in our text that Abraham is not just kind, but he is also bold in God's powerful promises. Immediately following Abimelech coming to him, we see a new backbone in Abraham. You see, friends, Abraham and his guys had dug a well in this land and had staked a claim in it so that they could water their flocks and herds. And the men of Abimelech had taken it from him. And he's really, really upfront with Abimelech about it. He, the text actually says he reproaches him. like He, he is like aggressively like accusing him, not letting him slide. Let's also, while that may feel aggressive, let's remember he's not tried to take it back by force, even though he could have. He's continuing to be kind. But he doesn't let him slide. Even when Abimelech says, well, I didn't know anything about it, right? He continues to press in. Why does that matter, right? Why are we so interested in this well in our text today? It matters because of a promise that was made by God to Abraham that is under threat, Remember, God has promised a land to Abraham and his descendants. Not just any land, but this land that they are in. And here the forces of a pagan king have taken a piece of the promised land from God's covenant people. Abraham will not stand for it. Instead, he stands boldly on the powerful promise of God. And from a place of power that should not be his, he takes the lead and makes a covenant with Abimelech, which is a binding agreement. Beyond just that, he actually buys back the well that is his in the first place with seven lambs as a symbol of his ownership. And then he finishes out the passage by planting a tree and remaining in the land. Let's not miss Abraham now possesses a piece of God's promised land. First through a covenant with Almighty God, but now through a treaty with humans. It's his. And though the time had not come to finally and fully claim the land, there is no question that Abraham is acting with a newfound boldness and confidence in the promise. And there is no fear, but instead a bold faith in God's powerful promises. And we lastly see here that Abraham acts like God's man. Not only is Abraham kind and courageous, 
But he also actively blesses Abimelech and acts as God's representative. Notice, and remember with me, Abimelech's first statement in this passage. He comes to him, why? Because God is with you in all that you do. That is what draws him, the presence of the Lord with Abraham. He's seen it. And then it sets Abraham up for this fascinating opportunity to act as God's representative to this pagan king. And where we've seen God making covenants with Abraham in the past, here the situation flips, and Abraham is the one making covenants with the nations of the earth. This is crucial in our understanding of what has happened in Genesis, because this is the first flexing of the new muscles of this priestly nation God is building through Abraham. This is it. Ground zero. And that is exactly the kind of behavior that we expect to see from a man who has received God's covenant promises. But it wasn't actually always that way. If you remember I said earlier, we actually had an opportunity to look at another time in Abraham's life where he wasn't quite so confident in God's promises. When what we've just seen gets flipped on its head and we grow to understand chapter 21 even deeper. And in that, there's this fascinating opportunity for a side-by-side comparison. And while it's not our focus, it's crucial, I think, to really understanding our passage. I want to check it out together. So keep your thumb in chapter 21. Turn back one page or one chapter to Genesis chapter 20 with me. We're going to move pretty quick through here, but I want us to get the big ideas of what's happening here. All right, so we see our second big idea in chapter 20, where he's been confident before. We see that God's people don't always have confidence in his powerful promises. If you're experiencing some deja vu with today's text. This is probably why, right? We've actually seen almost the exact same interaction with Abimelech and Abraham before, but it did not go the same way as what we've just seen. Now, when we come to chapter 20, Abraham has just shown up on Abimelech's doorstep. He's like moving into the land now. This is their first interaction. And there's the introduction between Abimelech, the Philistine king, and our man, Abraham. But where 21 sets us up to see it going well right off the bat. It starts to nose dive down bad. It goes downhill. We see firstly here that Abraham, where he has dealt kindly, here he deals falsely with Abimelech. The first recorded action that we have, the first recorded interaction is when Abraham passes Sarah off as his sister and Abimelech takes her into his house. Abraham deals falsely with Abimelech. This false dealing not only shows him that he has a a callousness, a hard heart toward his wife, Sarah, and a deep distrust in the Lord, it also shows that he has a coldness toward the danger that his actions pose toward Abimelech. God actually tells Abimelech that he is a dead man because of Sarah. Friends, Abraham's false dealings with Abimelech are not only sinful, but potentially deadly. Why would he do what he did then? 
This is where the contrast between our text today and chapter 20 really begin to show themselves. See with me that Abraham is afraid of Abimelech's power. Why are we told that he deals falsely? Because he says he's afraid that these Philistines would kill him because of Sarah. He's afraid of Abimelech's military might and power because Abimelech's people do not worship the Lord. He is afraid that these pagans will act like pagans. And so he chooses to act like a pagan. And that fear drove him into self-preservation mode where all of the righteousness that God has asked of him and all of his morality flies out the window. His fear of present circumstances shook his confidence in God's powerful promises away. It melted his courage, and he gave in to sinful impulses. And lastly, in this text, we see that Abraham not only deals falsely and with fear, but he also acts like a worldly man. Friends, God has consistently promised Abraham a people and a land. He has also tasked him with being a blessing to the nations. But here, all of the calling and promise of God to Abraham is ignored in this earlier interaction. And we're left thinking, what is going on? Why is our Abraham acting like this? His false dealings show us that he's being a curse to Abimelech, not a blessing like he's been called. But that is the way of the world. To curse your fellow man and to look out for yourself, that's not what he'd been called to. And that's also not what you and I have been called to. How often do we fall into the same pattern as Abraham? And while we may not walk in the same promise of a people and a land, we do live in light of God's promises. From his promise that he'll provide all that we need to his promise that he is coming back for us, we live lives full of God's promises. But how often do the stresses and pressures of our lives turn our eyes away from God's faithfulness with devastating consequences? I can be transparent with you, friends. This sermon has been uh, uniquely and especially challenging for me. See, my wife Lindsay and I are in the process of trying to move to this area, and if you've ever tried to move, it's, it's fun once it's done. There's a lot of details that are in the mix, and I've been so stressfully preoccupied with trying to make it work out my way on my timetable that I keep like, daily forgetting that God has promised to provide and to go before us and to meet our needs. I've been impatient I've been sarcastic, and I've just been, frankly, unkind. While it may not be the same cause or the same trigger for you, we all have things that take our eyes off of God's faithfulness. And we lose sight of his goodness and his promises. For you, maybe it's job security or maybe world events or the diagnosis that you're not so sure what to do with. How often do we deal falsely or harshly with someone who's desperate to encounter the love of God because we are being fearful. And I was challenged to ask, how often do my speech and my actions give a poor representation of the gospel because I'm struggling to believe God's promises? An application here for us, friends. The way that we treat others reveals how confident we are in God's promises. 
It's the litmus test for us. It was true in the life of Abraham, and isn't it true in our lives as well? I'm so thankful that God has given us such a great and challenging gift in his word because we're not left there. I recognize that we see a lot of things in this contrast between 20 and 21, 5,000 years ago, may seem a little disconnected, right? And Palm Sunday, we're wondering, how does this get back to Jesus, right? I want to start connecting those dots for us and wrapping some things up as we move forward together. That's what we're going to be doing with the rest of our time. So let's look at our third big idea together. Not only can we be confident, not only are we not always confident, but friends, we have reason to be confident in God's powerful promises. God's people have reason to be confident in his powerful promises. Feel free to leave chapter 20 behind and come back to our text. We're not going to be looking there anymore. It was an interesting contrast piece. And the contrast that we do see between chapters 20 and 21 is absolutely shocking. And just like my confusion with Palm Sunday growing up, it begs a key question for us. What's going on? Why is Abraham acting like a king when he looks like nothing special? And why is it that Abraham acts so rightly one day and so wrongly the day before? Like, what is going on? Friends, I'm convinced that the answer lies in a key piece of text It actually separates today's passage from chapter 20. The way that these are written is as a unit. It's a storytelling tool for us, and we're actually not intended to separate out every little detail, but we've zoomed in so then we can see what's happening. And they're written that way to draw our eyes to what happens in the middle. So look there with me. At the beginning of chapter 21, we see what is different about things. Isaac has come. The son who was promised has finally come. It's an event that by all human logic and wisdom and reason should have been impossible. It was impossible. His mother could not have children, but God did it. Remember, friends, that it has been decades upon decades upon decades that Abraham has been waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. God promised him that he would have a people and a land. And while there is no great nation, he is seeing the fulfillment of the first promise with his own eyes. And in our text, he stands firmly on the other promise of a land He's confident, but he's been confident before. You wouldn't be at fault for asking, will it last this time? Or are we going to have another chapter 20 where he's going to turn it around? Friends, we see the heart of his trust revealed in verse 33 of chapter 21. Look there with me. Abraham gives a new name to his God here in verse 33. He calls upon the name of El Olan. The everlasting God. Abraham is proclaiming, he is announcing, he is making the statement that this is not just a God who is above other gods. And he is not just the God of Abraham. 
No, friends, this God is everlasting. He lives and he reigns forever. And if he lives forever, then so too do his promises. That, that is what is so significant here. Abraham has reason to be confident that God's promises are not just for him or really even for his boy Isaac. He has reason to be confident that God's powerful promises will hold true for generations that have not yet been born. This is so cool. For the original audience that this text was written to, they were those generations yet unborn, seeing the faithful fulfillment of God's promises continue in their day. And what they would see in chapter 21, the change found within it would have served as a bold encouragement in the promises of God. And as they prepared to take the land, the well at Beersheba, as this place would come to be known, would serve as a sacred landmark. Here, right after the birth of God's promised son, their father Abraham had redeemed. He had bought back this from those who had taken it from him. This was their property as a people. And it would become such a special place that it would actually be seen as the southernmost point of the promised land. But beyond just the well itself, the conduct his behavior and the covenant that Abraham makes with Abimelech would have served as instruction for how they as a people were supposed to treat the nations around them. In moving through the book of Genesis, we constantly look forward in the fulfillment of God's promise of the land through the taking of it. And in so doing, I fear we can miss the point of what's happening. The long-term plan for the Jews in the wilderness was not the warpath. They were not supposed to conquer all the corners of the earth so that they could be masters of it. They were to take this land, but then they were to live in it. And God's people needed to know how to treat their pagan neighbors once they lived in the land. They would need to deal kindly and justly, serving as a blessing to them just as their father Abraham did. And just as it was with that same Abraham, God's presence was meant to draw the nations to them. They would need to be ready to act in bold confidence and kindness. And they'd get there. They'd establish a kingdom, but it wouldn't last forever. It would fall. For those that lived in those days, and us today as readers, we are pointed forward because we're shown that there is a greater fulfillment that is needed. And friends, it is my pleasure to announce to you that today is the celebration of that fulfillment. <laughs> the fulfillment of God's promises in the life of Abraham was a foretaste, an appetizer of the real fulfillment that was coming. There was one, there was one coming who was far greater greater than Abraham, greater than Isaac. He was the greater fulfillment of God's greater promise, Jesus. And 2,000 years ago, he was entering into Jerusalem to bring in the kingdom of God. I'd like us to run back to that question I asked earlier. and Pull it out of your brain. 
As we discussed, this Jesus rode into the city on the back of a humble donkey. He had no crown, no home, no political power, no money, but then he acted like he owned the place. And like everyone there was in the palm of his hand. But why? What's, what's going on here? And just as it was with Abraham, we're, we're supposed to ask, what is going on here? What I came to learn in the midst of my confusion growing up with that question was this. That there are things that go beyond what the eye can see. This is no exception. Friends, that man in rags on a donkey is more than meets the eye. He's not just confident in God's promises. He's God himself. And he's not just acting like a king. He is the king of kings. Every person there that day that ran to him and laid down branches and coats in front of him, they looked upon the author of life himself who had come to give them life. Friends, the same God whose powerful promises Abraham so confidently believed in had come in human flesh to finally fulfill them himself. He was the ultimate fulfillment. That through Abraham's line, the nations of the earth would indeed be blessed. That through his sacrifice for sin, mankind could be made right with God. When we see him on Palm Sunday, those things have not yet been fulfilled. They're almost there, but not yet. There's this tension that is called the already, but not yet. Where we are still in the waiting. And on Palm Sunday, the cross is still coming. His death is still coming. The empty tomb is still coming. The resurrection has not happened yet. But he is on the scene. With one purpose, to fulfill those promises and make men new. In light of that already but not yet, friends, let us remember that we also live in the tension of the already but not yet. As the king has come and in our day he has died and rose again. And he has promised to come back for his people and set all things right. We, too, wait for that day as he has not yet come back for us. And in that beautiful tension, let us reflect together on what we as his people are called to do in the meantime and what this text would challenge us to do. Firstly, friends, you and I must remember that God has dealt kindly with us. Let us not forget, never forget, that God has dealt kindly with us by sending us his greater son. Jesus, he dealt kindly with us because he laid down his life for his enemies so that we might be called his friends. The son upon whom our confidence is built is not the son of Abraham, but the son of God. The Lord had no obligation 
No requirement to send Jesus into the world to save sinners. But it was from the overflow of his great kindness and his love, that was what prompted him to send Jesus on a rescue mission to give us hope and life. The richness of his kindness, what he has done for us, that is what drives us to deal kindly with each other and with those around us. As first John 4 boldly proclaims, we love because he first loved us. And that powerful love transforms the way that we act toward those around us. And when we remember what Christ has done, it should change what we do. Friends, we're also challenged here that you and I must also have confidence in God's powerful promises. It's not a question. We must. The change that God desires in his people comes through confidence in his promises. So often we allow the circumstances, the stresses, the fears of our lives to push all confidence of God's promises out of our hearts and minds, don't we? But we must boldly cling to the promises of God, standing firmly in them because of the great assurance of promise that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He has proven himself to be faithful time and time again. And all throughout his word, he shows that he is a promise-keeping God. And the confidence that we have in Jesus shapes every aspect of our lives and transforms our behavior. Every part of us is powerfully transformed when we walk in the fullness of the confidence that what he has promised will come to pass. We become kind. We become more like Jesus as a witness to those who do not know him. Lastly here, friends, let us remember this, that if you know Christ, you must act like you belong to him. God's people must act like his. The Bible gives us, as his people, clear instructions on how to live in this world Christ sums up the entirety of the law into two commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. They are never separated. We love the Lord by worshiping him as we boldly walk out faith in his powerful promises. Our confidence in him is our worship. And in walking out that worship with the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to him. But friends, we are only changed if we are made new by the Son. That's, that's, the only, that's the door. Which begs the question for application for us, have you been made new by the Son? Do you know Jesus? This great Jesus. Everything else builds off of that. Outwardly, friends, from that place, we love our neighbors by the change in our behavior. And just as with Abraham, followers of Jesus are called to be a blessing to the nations, never a curse. 
We are to deal uprightly and kindly because we are confident in our Lord and his promises. We love those around us because we have been loved. And we are to live in such a way that the world cannot help but notice a difference. That the people of the world would look at us and say, surely God is with you in all that you do. And that as we take the message of the gospel to this world, that our lives would powerfully proclaim it too. That won't always be easy. Friends, we daily live in the tension and the brokenness of a fallen world as we wait for our king to come back for us. And as we wait in that tension of the already but not yet, how will we treat those around us? I would hope that we could say it's this, that we as God's people would be so confident in his powerful promises that we deal kindly with those who don't belong to him. As we find ourselves being powerfully transformed through that confidence in God's powerful promises, remember, remember, remember that we live in the already but not yet. That does not mean they won't happen. It just means not yet. Even this week is marked by that. Today we celebrate the coming of our King on Palm Sunday. The King has come, but in the story of Palm Sunday, the promises have not yet been fulfilled. And our eyes look to Friday, good Friday, when things will get far darker before they get brighter again. But always remember, friends, Sunday is coming, and God's powerful promises never fail. We'd love for you to join us this Friday as we worship in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, and then also next Sunday as we worship in the celebration of his risen life. We hope to see you there. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace in sending us Jesus. We thank you for your word. Father, I pray that we would become so confident in your powerful promises that we could not help but be kind to those around us. Spirit, would you work in us and transform us? And would you draw us ever closer to being molded to look like Jesus? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.